we go. Gonna rap about the show. Oh. <laughs> Katie was not amused at all. Do it again. Welcome to the Four Corners Crimecast. My name is Rory. My name is Katie. And I'm your host, Jake. And this week, we're talking about the kidnapping and murder of Nick Markowitz, which is the true events that inspired the 2006 movie, Alpha Dog. Oh, so I can finally use my Justin Timberlake knowledge in this episode. Yeah, because he was so good in that movie. Was a plus. And uh, where'd you do your research for this one, Jay? Oh, I watched the movie. Oh, good. No, I'm so, just kidding. Factual. I read a book. Okay, I read a whole book. It was 400ish pages long, and it took me eight and a half hours to read. You told me it was like 290 pages. Whatever. It yeah. was It was a bit of pages, and it was called... <laughs> it just like triples in pages all of a sudden? I said, I thought I said 400. That's about what it was. It was called My Stolen Son, the Nick Markowitz story by Susan Markowitz. Obviously, it was written by the victim's mother, and there are some bias, I'd say, maybe. But there's another book that's written from the quote-unquote killer's point of view. Maybe I'll read that later. But for now, just rolling with this one. Keep them on, on, on the edge of their seats there, Jake. And, yeah, uh, they'll be waiting. Where are we going for this one? This one happened in uh, West Hills, California, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. Ah, Los Angeles. The City of Angels. Or as the Spanish call it, Los Angeles. I don't think that's right. That's the direct translation. <laughs> I don't know how to be any more precise with it. Why don't you go ahead and start us off, Jake? West Hills, California, located about 25 miles northwest of Malibu, boasts some of the highest property values, not only in California, but also in America. What are those property values, Jake? All right, so here's the deal. I looked it up and forgot. Okay. I'm pretty sure the, the median um, house was somewhere in the six dollars $700,000 range, but they go way up from there. I can't believe you researched that. <laughs> well, I was curious. Okay. And also, it's really hard to find something interesting to say about West Hills, California, aside from the fact that... This is where the alpha dog murder took place. It's good when Jake does the episodes because these really obscure questions that I would never know the answer to, he actually looks up (laughs) for himself because he wants to know the answers to them. I was curious to know what kind of job I would need to get to move to such a suburb. Anyways, their population has the highest percentage of residents over 35 in Los Angeles County. By all accounts, the neighborhood would would be an ideal place to raise a family. Only one problem, crime follows shitty people, whether they got money or not. I don't think it it follows as closely in the wealthier neighborhoods, though. Oh, you don't, huh? What is the crime rate? Okay, no, there there actually is quite a bit of crime in the area. That's why I, I wrote this sentence, but I don't remember what the actual crime rate is. I'm sorry. So it's kind of like a wealthy, crime-filled part of town? Yeah, but you know L.A., there's drugs everywhere. Mm-hmm. Now, when you say West Hills, uh, is this actually in a hilled area? It's in the 47th percentile. And that means what, Katie? That 53% of cities are safer and 47% are more dangerous. Yes, so it's up there for a wealthy neighborhood. Middle of the road. The thing is, so the crime rate's 27.67 per 1,000, but that includes all crime, not just violent crime. So it could be like dogs shitting in their neighbor's yard. That's not a crime, okay? It's frowned upon. It's a crime? No, it's not. Sure it isn't. Vandalism. It looks like violent crime is pretty low. Interesting. All right, now that we've gone off on that tangent. Yeah, I got absolutely no idea how to start this next sentence. Thanks, Roar. Jack Hollywood, who despite trying to go straight once in the 90s, had been caught up in the drug trade since his early years. He married a woman named Lori, and they moved to Hollywood. Together they had a son, born January 28, 1980, and they named him Jesse James Hollywood. 
I don't. They didn't actually move to Hollywood. They moved to West Hills, but you get the idea. Did they move there because of his name? They named there because of his move. I think maybe they just thought they were, yes, destined to have a star on the boardwalk. And they named him Jesse James for obvious reasons? After the mayor, or the, after the governor of Minnesota a few years later. Jesse Ventura? Yeah. Hmm. So, Jesse James Hollywood, that's his legitimate real name. Yes, that is his real name. We're not going to talk about the movie too much in this episode. It's going to be next episode. But his name was Johnny True Love in the movie for people who are trying to put a... Both fairly stupid last names. All right. Terrible last names. Nicholas Markowitz was born on September 19th, 1984, to parents Jeff and Susan Markowitz. Jeff and Susan met a couple of years before at a local bar event called Screw Night. Now, what would the connotation of Screw Night be? So here's how it worked. When everyone would walk in, the bouncer, whoever, the owner, whoever was at the door, would give the dudes all a bolt, for lack of a better word, with a certain thread pitch on it. And then all the ladies would get a nut with a certain thread pitch on it. Then you got to go around and see if your screw matches. Yeah. All right. Jeff and Susan's screws did not match, for what it's worth. But they met each other anyway. They met each other anyways, yes. They had both been previously married. And Jeff had two kids from his previous marriage, Leah, six, and Ben, four. Jeff worked in the family business, which was an aerospace machine shop, working long hours. Don't know what that's like. Never heard of an aerospace machine shop. What is aerospace? What is machine? Susan didn't mind, though. In her own words, quote, I admired his work ethic and loved the way he treated me with kindness and affection. At the insistence of Jeff's mother, they were married December 7th, 1984. Why did she insist they get married? Was Susan pregnant? Susan was pregnant, and uh, she was like, they were living with her, and they were putting it off, and finally she was like, take a day off, Jeffy boy. Go down to the courthouse. Susan had always longed to be a mother, even dipping out on a previous relationship when the man she was seeing stated he was done having kids. She was like, but I want kids. And he was like, no, you don't. And she was like, pshoo. She left. When Nick was born, she finally had, she finally felt she had a purpose. Nick was, by his mom's accounts, a super smart and hilarious little kid, saying thank you to each person who gave him gifts at his first birthday and being able to identify the seven dwarfs by the time he was a year and a half. Even if they were uh, turned around, supposedly. You could only see the butts of the dwarves. By his third birthday, he led a group of toddlers in a balloon war revolt against the clown that had been hired for entertainment. He was basically beating the clown with a balloon animal. Life at this point seemed perfect for the Markowitz family, and Susan felt she had the American dream. Everything she'd ever wanted. They even had a sailboat on which they spent some of their best family time sailing the high seas. Surprisingly, Susan said that if she had to trace all of her family's problems back to one point in time, she would have to say it went back to the sailboat. Not because anything bad had happened on the sailboat, but because when Jeff's kids reached high school, they were faced with a choice. Pull the kids out of private school and put them in public school, or sell the sailboat. They chose the former, and Ben's behavioral problems seemingly started shortly thereafter. Wow, they must have really liked that sailboat. It was a great boat, you know? It was like 26-foot sailboat. So are we going to get in later to how Jesse James Hollywood connects to the Markowitzes? Oh yeah, that's okay. going to be in the next episode. This episode, I got to fill you in on everything, especially... Because, you know, the movie didn't tell you anybody anything about much of the, you know, beginnings. So we got to get into it. We got to dig in deep and unfold it like a pair of pants. As is often the case with a split home, there was a good deal of contention between the Markowitzes and Jeff's ex-wife, who was not named once in the book. I don't know her name. Just kept calling her 
the ex-wife. When Jeff and Susan got together, Jeff had minimal visitation rights, but as his ex-wife asked for more and more child support, Jeff was granted more and more visitation, to the point where they had the kids on a 50-50 split. Dysfunction ensued, culminating in the ex-wife trying to run Susan over with her car one morning as she dropped Ben off at the Markowitz house for a ride to school. Ben was pretty much caught in the middle of the whole thing, and despite Susan's best efforts to keep open communication, he began to get in trouble more and more regularly. Does Susan blame his behavioral problems on the ex-wife? No, she didn't. You'll see here shortly. At first she did, but she came around to realizing that that wasn't necessarily the case. At age 11, he got caught with a friend, stabbing tires with a screwdriver. A few months later, Ben and another friend went to visit yet another friend of theirs who lived nearby. No one answered the door, which was apparently open, so the boys went inside. There they found the family's car keys, and the rest is history. Ben's joyride damaged four cars. By sheer luck, the police did not get involved, and Jeff paid for all damages involved. Dropping, dropping bills to keep his son out of trouble. Was that typical for Jeff? Jeff had a bit of a blind spot for Ben, even though he knew that Ben was kind of a piece of shit. At this point, it was evident to the Markowitzes that Ben might be dealing with an imbalance or something, and they took him to a psychiatrist where he was slapped with an ADD diagnosis and a script for some good old Ritalin. Did the Ritalin help at all? I don't think so. It depends on, you know, they didn't really talk in the book about how regularly he took it. He was prescribed it. He still acted out. Shortly thereafter, Ben got into a full-on physical altercation with his mom after she refused to let him go see Boys in the Hood, which was in theaters at the time. As Ben tried to leave, she blocked the door and ended up punching him, hitting him with a corded phone. So supposedly, according to Susan, she hit him first, and then when he got past her, she like swung the corded phone and hit him with it. And she bit him hard enough to leave deep teeth marks. Did he hit her back at all? Did he respond or was this her basically beating him and then him leaving? Supposedly, this was her beating him and then him leaving by Susan's account. There's two sides to every story and I wasn't about to read another 600 pages. Has the ex-wife <laughs> written a book too? Possibly. Probably another 700 pages. Yeah, her book was a, just called Corded Phones and Their Uses and <laughs> it sold well for a few years. Then the cordless came out and she was just lost. The ex-wife called Jeff to tell him what happened, and Susan and Jeff went out looking for him. When they found Ben, they brought him home and cleaned him up. At this point, Ben's mother gladly relinquished Ben to the Markowitz's custody. He moved back into their house, and he did not see his mother for the rest of the year. That was her only child with Jeff, was just Ben? I'm yeah. pretty sure Leah was also their child. Jeff and Susan thought that once he was living under their roof, his issues would dissipate, blaming his behavior on his lack of structure and discipline while he was with his mom. They enrolled him in counseling on an quote-unquote, as-needed basis, and everything seemed like it was going to be just fine. This false sense of security caused Jeff and Susan to not even question when a few months later, Ben came home with a broken arm, saying simply he fell off his bike. That's the thing, though, is you're not really, like, it's not really a make-em-up if it's something that plausibly could happen. Like, why would you question that? I fell off my bike and broke my arm. Huh. Oh, why aren't, why isn't anything else scraped and bruised and broken, buddy? You don't always scrape yourself when you fall off your bike. You didn't grow up with grass, and that's sad. When Ben was 12, he asked his dad for a ride to the movies, telling him he would meet a friend there and that that kid's mom would drive them back home. Upon reaching the mall, though, Ben skipped the movies, met up with a friend, stole a car, and bounced. 12-year-old? 12, 12 years old, yep. And uh, his friend didn't even know how to drive, so Ben had to figure it out on the fly. Jeff, for whatever reason, got home and immediately called the friend's mom to verify that she was actually going to be picking them up. You'll notice that these parents don't trust their kids. Obviously for good reason here. When she didn't have a clue what he was talking about, 
he knew something was afoot. Racing back to the movie theater, he checked the auditorium. Despite it being dark, he was pretty sure Ben wasn't there. He literally like went in and sifted through the aisles. Like, are you Ben? Are you Ben? After that, he waited outside the movie, and sure enough, Ben never came out the door. He called the ex-wife, and she hadn't seen Ben either. They went to all of Ben's friends that they knew of, and slowly they were able to get an idea of what had happened. Essentially what it boiled down to was that Ben had been jumped into a local gang who called themselves DTS, which stood for Down to Serve, which honestly just sounds like a Mormon straight-edge gang to me. What do you think, Rory? I'm just wondering what they're serving. That was my question, too. What are they serving? The community. Prison time? Broken arms. That's where Ben had gotten his broken arm. Da-da-da. Because <laughs> down to serve makes it sound like you're open to jail time for being in a gang. That's exactly what it is, I think. But honestly, I like to think that they're just handing out soup at the soup kitchen. Yeah. Down to serve you soup. Evidently, probably a loyalty test, one of the other gang members had called Ben pretending to be a cop and saying that they wanted to question him about the car thefts. Rather than go in for questioning and risk being labeled as a rat, Ben decided to just get out of town for a bit. Pretty forward thinking for a 12 year old. (laughs) For real. After getting one of Ben's friends to tell him where he was headed, Jeff got his brothers together to try and beat Ben to the house in the San Fernando Valley. They did, and set up a roadblock to stop Ben. Well, the problem was, was old Grandpa Markowitz was hiding in a bush, but not well enough, and when Ben came around the corner into the neighborhood, he saw Grandpa, half-crouched, and took off. Just beelined out of there. Turned around, of course, first. A high-speed chase ensued that culminated in Ben running a red light and T-boning another car. And he was 12. That's what the book said. Kind of hard to drive at 12. Yeah, he couldn't probably see that well. But, okay, so was this chase, this was strictly his family chasing him, or were there police involved? No, this was his family. One of his, like, cousins got in a car and took off after him, I believe. Did the police show, they showed up eventually, though, right? Yeah, eventually they showed up to this one. Luckily for Ben, no one was hurt, but he was caught in the stolen car by the police. And to make it worse, there was a twenty-two caliber rifle in the trunk when they opened it up. Ben landed in juvie for three weeks at this point, and the Markowitz is considered sending him to a private military school. Once again, though, that would cost somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 grand a year. Instead, they hoped the experience would be a wake-up call and enrolled him in baseball and taekwondo. Was he any good at baseball? He was pretty good at baseball, yes. Ben was always, like, good at the sports, and Nick would kind of just follow along. From the time Susan and Jeff got together, she had tried to make it easy for Ben to talk to her. When he was 13, she had an idea for a journal that he could write notes to her in and she would respond for him to read at a later time. Ben was down with this idea for a few years, telling Susan the good things that happened to him, the bad things, and even the things that he didn't like his parents doing. He would sign his name with a peace sign, calling it his, quote, official mark. Oh, what a 13-year-old thing to do. I don't think 13-year-old Rory ever signed his name with a peace sign. Nah, 13-year-old Rory was more like signed his name with his signature. I was thinking like R666Y. You seem like the type that would have drawn the anarchy A on everything. <laughs> he went by Rari okay. for a while. Okay, Katie. That only that that happened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Susan was, I would say, a bit overbearing. While it was all well-meaning, she would consistently violate Ben's privacy, going through his belongings when he wasn't home. He wrote to her about it in a journal entry where he stated, quote, I feel that both you and Dad are wrong when you go through my stuff without telling me. I don't care if you think it's necessary or not. 
He went on to say that he would like to be present for such searches as the only thing he kept hidden were love notes and those were no one's business but his own. A later journal entry stated, quote, the worst feeling in the world is the feeling of being invaded. I can tell you this is very much a true statement because I grew up in a home where my mom was always going through mine and my brother's stuff and uh, it's not a good feeling. The Markowitz parents also had what I consider to be a fear of anything that didn't fit in with their lifestyle. Many journal entries show Ben pleading with Susan to talk to Jeff about his overbearing strict rules regarding what they perceived as, quote, gang clothes. Susan makes many attempts to demonstrate that they had fought the gang lifestyle for Ben at every turn. One excerpt from the book, she writes, quote, Before long, we knew what clothing to watch out for, what hand gestures, what colors, what haircuts. Ben wasn't allowed to wear his hair slicked back, which made him upset. No black jackets or hats unless he was with his parents, and he wasn't allowed to have markers. The marker bit came from one particular time when Susan went through Ben's drawers, found a stash of paint markers from which she concluded that surely Ben was, quote, graffiti tagging. And he was. Probably. I mean, but not wearing black clothes. Yeah, and he couldn't walk to us. Oh, no, that was Nick. Nick had even more strict rules, but we'll get to that. Well, when you're DTS, Katie, everyone in the entirety of America knows that DTS gang colors, black with a hat. It just seems like a really bad color to choose because I feel like everyone wears at least one piece of black clothing daily. Not people who love their lives. They're all gang members. Yeah. But then, like, if you wear, like, okay, so you can't wear black because you're not in that gang, but then you can't wear blue or red. You or need green. to just wear um, flesh-colored clothes so yeah. people think you're naked. Seems like it's severely limiting. But then you got to watch out for the Mervyn's gang rolling around. Got them khakis and them brown shirts. When Ben was 13, Susan noticed him and his friends casually passing a pistol around outside. When she confronted him, he said a girl from school had stolen it from her dad because Ben felt he needed protection from some students at school. Lies. I feel like that escalated really quickly. Like, you can't wear black to all of a sudden he has a gun. There might have been. This story had a lot of details in this book. You know, I maybe skimmed a few things. Okay, I'm just wondering because it seems like he was in this, like, fake gang. No, it was, it was supposedly a real gang. You know, it was a high school gang for what a high school gang is. But he's 13. He's not even in high school. He got jumped in. It just seems strange. He was large for his age. It seems like he's not really doing anything that would require protection from other students. Well, like, the Down to Serve gang broke into cars mostly is what they did. Here's the yeah, thing. Yeah, but that's not harming anyone at school that would make students want to attack him, would it? Well, supposedly he might have also been uh, dealing a little pot on the side. Obviously throwing up those prayer hands for the down-to-serve lifestyle. I wish that you hadn't done that, and I wish I hadn't said pot. <laughs> that was pretty much all Susan could take, and she decided she didn't want Nick living in the same house as his degenerate brother anymore. So Nick was the favorite child, right? Nick was definitely Susan's favorite. Because <laughs> he was her yeah. biological child, so she didn't really have that connection with She with tried. Him. I mean, if, you're to, if you believe everything they're written in the book... There was lots and lots of uh, correspondence between them in this journal. And, you know, she tried, I think, to not make him feel like that. But I don't think there's any way around it. Especially when, you know, as we're going to see, Nick is really good at a lot of things. Or he's, like, good at a lot of stuff that parents are concerned about. You know, like school, being smart, and, you know, identifying the seven dwarves when you're 18 months old. He's good at all that stuff. Ben is good at sports. First, Ben's Taekwondo instructor offered to take him in. 
Susan and Jeff thought this was a surprisingly good idea, and Ben went and stayed with the sensei. Six months into his stay, they determined that his behavior had improved and agreed he could come back home. The fact that Ben's vacation was costing them about a grand a month in rent and board to the sensei made the decision that much easier. Not long after moving back in, Ben and Jeff got into a physical altercation over Ben not wanting to help his dad paint a room. He wanted to go out instead. Concerned for his mental health or that he was using drugs, they scheduled an appointment with a therapist. In that session, Jeff laid down the law, so to speak, saying the physical violence was not going to fly. Ben could toe the line or kick rocks. When they got home, as Jeff started in about painting the room, he turned to make sure Ben was listening, but Ben was gone. His sister Leah said he had walked down the street, and she last saw him turning a corner. Assuming he went to his mother's, and sick of the whole situation, Jeff decided not to go looking for him. So when he saw the psychiatrist originally and got the ADHD diagnosis, was it like a one-time? He saw him once, and they never took him back? In the book, it said as needed. It's not how therapy works usually. Yeah, like here and there they would go. To just a psychiatrist this is the first time you've seen a, a therapist? I believe so, but I'm not 100% sure. I think so, yeah. Six months went by with Ben couch surfing, but mostly staying with a guy named Eric who he had met when out with friends at Universal Studios in Hollywood. Eric had given Ben a ride in his limo and told him he could stay with him whenever he needed. Eric was a bounty hunter and owned a tattoo parlor where Ben became an apprentice and apparently practiced on himself a lot of the time. Kind of like that guy who has been tattooing himself once a day for 300 days. I would hope Ben would have a little more talent. How old was he at this point? Like 15? Yeah, that sounds about right. Ben would check in with his parents regularly, though. When they would ask if he was thinking of coming home, he said, quote, No, I'm cool. During one such call, he told his parents he was, quote, learning to cartoon. Trying to be positive, they considered that maybe Ben had found a new career path. Their tune changed, however, when they realized he wasn't just doodling in a note. They didn't actually realize this until the day that Ben decided he was done with the streets. When Jeff met up with him, he barely recognized him. Knowing that Susan was not interested in having Ben in her home, Jeff got an apartment for Ben and himself, hoping it would give them some bonding time. Did they not recognize him because he had so many tattoos? Yeah, and his hair was bleached and he was super skinny. And was he using drugs at this point? Yes, he was out on the streets doing the drugs. Was he using meth like the movie depicted? No, that we'll get into all the things the movie didn't depict correctly, but he was not a heavy drug user at all um, up until actually after uh, his brother was murdered. Okay, did he ever use meth? She never got into what drugs he took, but she did find pills in his belongings. Ben had been kicked out of his father's alma mater, El Camino Real High School, for slapping a girl who threw a milk carton at him, so Jeff had him enrolled in a new school. Jeff was on top of keeping Ben out of trouble, leaving work specifically to pick him up from school and then taking him back to work with him pretty much every day. Everything went fine for a bit. Jeff and Ben even began regularly playing doubles tennis across the street at a park. Then Jeff and Susan went on a quick trip to Palm Springs with some friends for a couple of days, instructing Ben to, quote, just chill and not have anyone over. Two days later when they returned, though, Jeff could barely park his car before the apartment manager came out raving about how he couldn't stay there with his son, exclaiming that he had had a huge, quote, drug party while Jeff was absent. Oh, and Ben was nowhere to be found. What is a drug party? It's a just party. a regular party? It's just a party, yeah, you know. But people might have been having too much fun, so there had to be drugs. It couldn't have been that huge of a party in an apartment, though, could it? You'd be surprised. Yeah, you can pack teenagers into an apartment like sardines in a can. During the search for Ben, Jeff met Rose, a lady who was a parent of one of Ben's friends, and an all-around caring lady who looked out for kids in need in the area. She offered to take Ben in for a bit, and Jeff agreed. So this is the second random person who's taken Ben in at this point. 
Not too long into his stay there, he royally fucked up at his third school. This time, according to Susan, it wasn't entirely his fault. Supposedly, a student had spread a rumor that Ben didn't like black kids. Ben, being so good at controlling his emotions, fell hook, line, and sinker for the supposed setup. He walked right into the classroom the boy was in and knocked him out cold. Having recently been jumped into a gang, a new gang, called the Black Heart Pariahs, Oh, shit. Ben now had his entire gang of cowards posting up outside the school to confront the black student who Ben had punched. The principal called Jeff to tell him he needed to get to the school ASAP as his son had incited a race war. By the time Jeff got there, the cops had defused the situation, but the damage was done and Ben was fucked. He had wrecked his chances at every school available to him, and Jeff decided he was set to a life of mediocrity at best. So, he was upset because someone started a rumor that he didn't like black kids. Yeah. So, he went and punched a black kid. Well, it was a black kid who started the rumor, supposedly. The logic there doesn't line up at all. Yeah, Because wouldn't you just, like, I don't know, not punch anybody, but especially a black kid when the rumor is that you don't like... Teenage boy logic is kind of fickle. Yeah, I mean, as an adult, you realize it's better to just buy him a Krispy Kreme, but... That's not what he did. He didn't think about being a nice person and making people think differently of him. It just seems like if someone's accusing you of being racist, you wouldn't, like, do something that would definitely make you look racist. Well, yeah, like I said, he fell for it. (laughs) Rose didn't seem to agree that Ben was a lost cause, maybe because she was new to the situation, but she let Ben continue to stay with her, even though he now had nothing to keep him occupied. Consequences of this came sooner rather than later when Ben and his friends decided to go for a beach trip with Rose's daughter. Soon after arriving at the beach, Rose's daughter noticed a guy down a ways on the beach from them and told the group that the guy had been bugging her for the better part of six months, calling her incessantly and even threatening to rape her. Ben wasted no time approaching the guy and asking him if he knew the girl. He didn't wait for a response, though. His hand was already outfitted with his brass knuckles, and he smashed the dude across the side of the face, busting his head wide open. The cops had already been called because that group of guys had illegally driven their car on the beach. And the cops were just arriving in time to see Ben crack the dude's head open, and they arrested him right there on the spot. Ben's mom posted his bail and got him out of jail, but it did not last long, as he was quickly pulled over. Turns out the Acura that he had been driving for months was stolen, and supposedly he didn't know, but he found out either way that day. After a short police chase, which ended with Ben hiding from the cops in a warehouse, he was arrested. Off he went to juvie, a bittersweet moment for his parents who had seen this coming for some time. Susan was relieved that she didn't have to worry about Nick's safety while Ben was incarcerated. Was she that genuinely concerned about Nick and his safety? Yes. She thought that Ben was going to somehow... Poison him. Yes, she was. Maybe Maybe I didn't even give a good enough, like, list of examples, but yeah, she was dead set convinced that, um... Ben's lifestyle was going to taint her son. For his eighth birthday, Susan had given Nick a journal like the one she had given Ben. Nick would pretty much write all of his thoughts in it, simple stuff like if his day was good or bad, how stoked he was for a new book, or to ask Susan what she thought he should be for Halloween. Susan would use the journal to try to give advice. Compared to Ben's journal, the overall feeling in this journal was much more lighthearted. One entry, though, was decidedly more serious in a note where Nick was expressing frustration over forgetting his school books. He got really down saying, quote, he wished he were dead and that he was crying really bad, had messed up his Legos, and was really, really sad. Did they take him to a psychiatrist? Or were they, like, pretty cons- pretty sure that didn't work after it not <laughs> had done anything to Ben? I don't think Nick ever saw a psychiatrist. 
If you're eight and wishing you were dead, that's usually a good sign that you should probably go talk to someone. I think all eight-year-olds say they wish they were dead at some point, though. Yeah, I don't think he he didn't realize the seriousness of what he was saying. And then Susan did respond, not severely, but seriously, letting him know, you know, you shouldn't wish you were dead. But no, I don't think they uh, took him to counseling. Nick was 10 when Ben went to juvie, and he missed his older brother. He got his first letter from Ben on in December of 1994. It didn't say much except to ask how everything was, tell Nick where he was, and mainly to stress the point that it was not his choice to be, to be there. If Ben had it his way, he would be back at home with Nick. Were Ben and Nick close, despite Susan trying to keep them apart? Yeah, they were, but throughout the book, and we'll get into it a little bit more next week, um, especially when... Nick gets old enough to try to want to go out and hang out with his brother and his friends. Um, We'll see that he wanted to be a lot closer to him than he was, but Susan definitely interfered with that. And I'm sure that Jeff technically did too, but he's probably just along for the ride. Yeah, if he's staying in an apartment with Ben, it seems like he was a lot closer to him than Susan was. Yeah, Ben's relationship with Jeff really made it difficult for Susan and Jeff, but they got through it for the most part. Ben wrote letters to his dad also, telling him how he was working on getting better at math and that he had even been punched in the face by another kid, but let it go and told the guards. Overall, it seemed that Juvie was doing good things for Ben. In one letter, Ben even said that he had made the honor roll and his teachers were encouraging him to take GED. I'm not sure what kind of honor roll they have in Juvie, but I'm guessing it's regular school. They don't have honor roll in prison, though. Ben's letter to Nick's were often written to try to encourage the younger brother to take school seriously and to try not to aggravate his parents, who were probably feeling a lot of stress from everything that had gone on recently. When Nick's grades slumped, Ben wrote to him saying, quote, if you're going to be a class clown, you're not going to ever get into any college. And if you have to be a class clown, you might as well screw up all around. February 25th, 1995, Ben was released and Nick was thrilled to have him home, writing in his journal, quote, I'm really excited to have Ben home. I want to do a lot of stuff with him. It was obvious that Nick wanted more time to hang out with his brother. Susan wasn't helping the situation, as she was more paranoid than ever having Ben back in the house, and she kicked her snooping into high gear. She would go through Nick's pockets, his drawers, and his room, reading all of his notes, refolding them, and putting them back exactly as she had found them. In the book, she even talked about how hard it was to refold the mid-90s origami notes that those damn puzzle paper prodigies were so how old was ben at this point after he got out of juvie how long was he there so ben was about uh 15 when he went to juvie and nick was 10 and then he was released on february 95 so that would have mean meant he was there for about a year was he on any sort of probation no by his 12th birthday nick was feeling uneasy in his social world despite being funny and well-liked he worried that he wasn't sure he wanted to get grouped in with the drama kids he regularly hung out with he began wearing safety pins on his clothes but susan quickly put a stop to that taking them away from him and banning him from wearing them this pissed off nick who felt that he was not being allowed to express himself around this time he also decided to go by nick instead of nicholas and would become irritated if people didn't address him as such this is like normal teenage brooding yeah i mean especially for a kid who has no privacy. Yeah, it seems like his mom's just really dramatic about a lot of stuff that normal children go through. She's very dramatic, and she we'll get in, like I said, to the stuff that was true and not true, but one part of the movie that was true was the part where he was telling the girls how his mom would wake up, or he would wake up, and his mom was just sitting there right in front of him staring at him, and she admitted that was true. So she's, uh, she's an interesting woman. But, you know, she doesn't get to do that anymore, so I feel bad for her. She wouldn't be able to anyways because he'd be an adult now and it'd be weird if she woke up. 
Anyways, September 1997 would bring Nick's 13th birthday, which is pretty important to Jewish families. Oh yeah, the Markowitzes are Jewish, if you didn't get that from the name. Something I found out is that after the bar mitzvah, a person is expected to take part as an adult in the synagogue. Although I'm not exactly sure what that entails, but I thought it was interesting. There was a lot to do, as the occasion is not only a large, important ceremony, but is also followed by an after-party of biblical proportions. Nick took it very seriously, and because his dad had never had a proper bar mitzvah, he invited him up during the ceremony to recite a blessing, to basically replace the one he had never got to do as a kid. Despite Ben making a scene at the after party, resulting in him leaving, and calling his, calling his dad a bitch on the front lawn, the celebration was a lot of fun. The celebration was great. There were a lot of speeches and candle lightings, and there was a DJ and dancing and drinking. For the icing on top of the cake, Susan and Jeff threw Nick a 13th birthday party later that week with all of his friends. Could they not come to the bar mitzvah? Oh, no, I'm sure, no, I'm sure they were, but he got to have a separate party. Okay. They played darts and pool and ping pong and all kinds of cool stuff that 13-year-olds do. Nick started high school in September 1998. After a summer of vacations that included a cruise, at least one camping expedition, and a trip to Colorado to see his sister Leah. Now more serious than ever about his religion, Nick enrolled in the LA Hebrew High School program, and he made the transition to high school fairly seamlessly. His intelligence was apparent, and he was way too good at arguing for a 14-year-old kid. He was so persuasive, and he enjoyed arguing with anyone who would argue back. Kind of like Rory. I don't argue. (laughs) The people that listen to this podcast have heard me and you argue. I don't think they have. (laughs) This was only a problem for his parents and his teachers, who would regularly get frustrated losing argument after argument to a high school freshman. So it seems like Nick did a lot more family stuff. Nick was a real sweet kid, you know, and he was all about family time. It seems like when when Ben was this age or younger, he went on the sailboat every so often, but he didn't really go on cruises and camping trips and I don't know it just seems like they really favorited Nick and it might have had an effect on Ben. Well I think that Ben was probably going to go on camping trips and whatnot but then he got high. He did go on a lot of camping trips with them though that was something she said they would go out camping quite a bit fairly regularly every summer at least multiple trips about an hour away from the house she would say like pretty close quick trips but they'd do a lot of them. Okay. It's like where we're going to end it this week. Yep, that's part one. Part two, all the interesting, juicy stuff and the death come next week. All right, guys. Well, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's, that's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, our Facebook group, Four Corners Crimecast discussion group, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast and on Twitter at Four Corners Cast. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, and check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com, where you can get a full episode list or send us an idea for an episode that you want to hear or get your free sticker from our merch store by entering the code BINGOBANGO at checkout, and we will get it out to you. And we've got a whole brand new batch of stickers just came in. So who's our sticker guy? What's his A.W. Name? Stickers. Shout out to A.W. Stickers. He's in California. He always hooks it up fat. All right, guys. Talk to you next week. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers. It's like a Saturday chicken sitting on the couch, like just chilling. And it's... The sun's <laughs> already up in the background. Yeah. yeah, and he's watching TV and it says, cluck, cluck, baguks. <laughs> Don't give no fucks.